when I think about BET, the thing that I'm most proud of is BET created more African-American multimillionaires than any company had ever done. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was something that, that made me proud. And today, BET is still going strong and it'll be around forever. Yes. So that's a legacy that you can point to. But more importantly to me, it proved that you can take African-American talent, put them together, provide vision, leadership, and, and, and focus and content and capital. You can create significant value for yourself, your family, and send a strong message that given an opportunity, African-Americans can achieve in, for the benefit of this country and for themselves as well as anybody else. Agreed. Welcome back to Access and Opportunity. I'm Carla Harris. This season, we're speaking with entrepreneurs who have successfully scaled and sold their companies with a particular focus on their exits. In this episode, I'm so excited to sit down with Bob Johnson, the groundbreaking entrepreneur and founder of BET. In the late 1970s, Bob Johnson came up with what some might say was a radical idea, programming by and for African-Americans. And so BET was born. 20 years later, Bob Johnson sold the company to Viacom for almost $4 billion, making him one of the wealthiest African-Americans in the country. Today, I sit down for a candid conversation with Bob about how he built the company the importance of finding investors who shared his values, and why he finally sold BET. Along the way, Bob offers some important playbook points regarding team building and self-confidence. And finally, Bob leaves us with an analysis of the current investment landscape while providing suggestions for how underrepresented entrepreneurs can overcome obstacles that stand between them and their pursuit of capital. Come on and join me for the ride. Mr. Bob Johnson, business icon, visionary, pioneer, and the list can go on and on. Let me first start by saying thank you for being a part of the Access and Opportunities podcast. Carl, I'm delighted to be here with you. Thank you. Well, we're going to jump right in. This season, we're talking to outstanding entrepreneurs that have had a successful exit. And a few years ago, you sold BET to Viacom. So let me ask you a little bit about Viacom as a partner, because I have to believe that there were a number of people who saw the value at that point. So, you know, what what did you see with Viacom as a partner? What else was it about them that made the difference? I went to him and said, guys, look, I'll sell you the company. We got past the valuation issue. Now let's get what they call to the cultural issues. And the cultural issues for me me were nothing's going to change in the way I run the company. I'm running the company. Everybody at this company reports to me. The company's going to stay in Washington, D.C. That's where I live. I'm not moving to New York. I'm not moving to L.A. It was going to stay there. They agreed to that. And so to me, it was not a a difficult decision. And knowing that the cable industry at that time was not going to buy BET to shut it down. Mm -hmm. One, the political pressure of shutting down BET would have been significant. Mm -hmm. Somebody else would have had to create another BET, and ultimately TV1 came on. 
somebody would have to create it again, and the pressure on the industry would be to do it. So, and more importantly, uh, Mel Carmazan recognized he'd been in radio and everything. He understood how radio and music appealed to the African American marketplace. He recognized that BET and its value was in its content, its targeted focus on the African American community, whether it was black college football or sitcoms or music videos. That market was a valuable market. And he knew that advertisers wanted to reach that market. And BET was the only national distribution platform, network, if you will, that could deliver that to the Coca-Colas, the Budweiser's, the Procter and Gamble's of the world. And so they had a vested interest in keeping BET the way it was. My job was to make sure that the people and the culture of BET remained intact. And so that made it a much easier kind of sell for me uh, when you put all those reasons together. Okay. So let's talk about now the journey of creating BET. You were a lobbyist, you learned the business capacity, and you saw that this was an audience that was being overlooked, arguably. So you decided that you wanted to start this. So let's talk to the entrepreneurs out there who have a great idea like that. How do they begin to think about recruiting capital? Because I'm assuming, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming you didn't just have friends and family sort of hanging out where you could go to a and say, give me a couple million dollars, let me get this cable you know, station started. So talk to us about that process. Well, to any entrepreneur who is, is listening, there, there are several things you got to sort of focus on to do it. First of all, there's, there's no training school for entrepreneurs. You, know, you, you, may, you can go to Harvard, you can go to Wharton, and you can go to any business school you want to go to. But being an entrepreneur is something that's in your DNA. How I get there, I, I don't know. It could be from whatever. But the point is that the first fundamental thing you have to have as an entrepreneur, you got to believe in yourself. Mm -hmm. If you don't believe in yourself, uh, it's very hard that you're going to convince somebody else to believe in you. So it starts there. The second thing I think an entrepreneur has to have is the ability to articulate their vision to people who are going to join them. It's almost like a crusade or sailing into dangerous water. It's it's Christopher Columbus, you know, <laughs> come go with me. And they say, wait a minute, Columbus, the, wor the wor world is flat. We're going to sail off there. And he's able to convince people to say, no, it's not going to happen. This is going to be something that you remember all your life and we're going to work together. So you got to be able to articulate that vision, motivate people to join you in, in that cause. And it's got to be demonstrable that you are willing to work as hard as the people you ask to be around mm -hmm. you. Okay. No leader who is a successful leader does less than what he asks the people to do for him. Mm -hmm. And if you can get that kind of motivation imparted into your people because of how they feel about you, then you go out and try to, you know, sell to the people who want to be a part of that. For example, I'll tell you a story that when I went to uh, John Malone mm -hmm. to put the first half a million dollars into BET, and he put the money in, and we came up with the ownership structure. But he had to keep money in because the company wasn't profitable overnight, so he would keep putting money in. Now, John had, as you would know, Carl, he had choices. He could put it in his equity, which would give him more control, or he could put it in his debt on the assumption that their debt would be paid back. Well, John put his money in and this fledgling business as debt rather than equity. 
So when the debt was paid off and, you know, he still had his equity, of course, I remember asking John, I said, John, why did you put the money in as debt when you could have put it in equity and own more interest and ownership of BET? He said to me this, he said, Bob, I always knew you'd work harder for yourself than you would for me. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of, you know, expression of somebody who believes in somebody I'm willing to back financially. Mm-hmm. So I would say to every entrepreneur listening is convince somebody that your value system, whether it's hard work, integrity, ethics, are in line with the person you're sitting down asking for dollars. Mm-hmm. Now, if you can communicate to people who have a com- what I'd call a shared interest in what you're doing, it's a better target opportunity to talk to that person. John Malone was a cable operator. Uh-huh. I was talking about cable programming. Mm-hmm. He needed programming. I needed distribution. There so those factors made a sale easier than if I was selling him something he absolutely had no interest in, no knowledge of, and no no commitment to. So it, it's a it's a it's a messaging on your part, but it starts with you believing in yourself and finding something that you feel will be beneficial to a broader community, i.e. customers, whether they're business customers or consumer customers, and to people who want to share with you your values. Because most entrepreneurs attract people who are not just dollar-oriented. They want to get a return, but they're more excited about the value of creating something. So so you got to look for that, that kind of emotion in somebody you're talking to. Well, you make a very interesting playbook point because one of the things that our research has told us, Bob, is that many venture capitalists don't do the work to understand the market, especially if it's a market that caters to an ethnicity or a demographic that that does not look like them. And the other thing that we've heard from entrepreneurs uh, of color and women is that they significantly have to de-risk the business before someone's willing to put that first dollar. But you make a very important playbook point He was already a cable operator who needed content. It was disruptive in its own right to use today's technology terms because there wasn't anything out there like it. But the idea of content going into a cable operator was something that was natural. Is that part, was that part of your sale to, to John was that, you know, this business is driven by advertising and we're it because nobody else is out there. So if they're going to back anybody, they're going to back me if I can bring X to the table. And what's the X? Well, yeah, I mean, to me, an entrepreneur, first of all, an entrepreneur sort of has two parts to it. One is just willingness to try just about anything that they believe has a chance of being successful because there's a need out there. Mm-hmm. You got you got to be it. Now, and the other part is, You've got to be able to find people who have that same alignment of that need. So you got to put two things together. You got to say, is this something that the market needs? And then can I find somebody who understands that the market needs it mm-hmm. and closer to their line? Mm-hmm. Now, you said something about the playbook about research. Most entrepreneurs don't do research. They do gut mm-hmm. research. So mm-hmm. when, when I started BET, now my thing as to why BET should exist is because of the great John Johnson. John Johnson felt that a magazine that told the story of the rise of the black middle class was in demand by black Americans who wanted to see themselves in a light that was different from what the other magazines at the time were reporting, because they simply didn't report it for the most part. 
So John believed that. Now, he didn't do necessarily a whole lot of research. In fact, if you, if you hear from John Johnson, his story, he told me, he said he wanted to sell his magazines. And so he went down to, I think, a Walgreens, the drugstore, and asked the manager of the store, would you put my magazines in the magazine rack? Back in that day, and you want to buy a magazine, you go down to a magazine rack, or you go to the train station, wherever they are, and you pull out one of 30, 40, 50 magazines. It was basically the way you got information. Well, you know, at that time, the white owner of Walgreens and other places say, no, we're not putting a black magazine. Nobody's going to buy it. And we got shelf space. We want it for other magazines. We think people will buy. Well, John, being an entrepreneur and believing in his cause that there was a market there, would tell some of his African-American friends and people in the church and community, Go down to Walgreens, and when you go to Walgreens, buy everything you think you need for your household and your family, and, you know, it's soap, it's toothpaste, it's grab whatever you think you need. And when you go to the counter, you go to pay, and you say, oh, before I pay, uh, I'd like to get that Ebony magazine. And when the guy says, which would be true, uh, we don't care that magazine. You take everything you bought and put it back on the shelves again. <laughs> so... John tells a story that after that happened for a couple of weeks, he got a call from the owner of the manager of the store. Uh, you know, Mr. Johnson, would you please bring down some of those magazines? I think we can find a space for you on the ah, show. Ah, okay. So, you know, and that's, you know, and the same thing when I started BET. You know, I was I was going up on Capitol Hill with a guy who had a channel in mind for the elderly. And uh-huh. I was supposed to take, I was a lobbyist, I was going to take him around to one of the committees that deal, dealt with issues regarding the elderly. And so we were riding up a taxi up to Capitol Hill to the uh, Senate, and he had his proposal. And I said, uh, let me look at your proposal. And he had in there certain facts. He said the elderly people buy certain products, elderly people shop at certain stores, elderly people save certain kind of money, certain characteristics, yes. you know, demographics of the elderly. And I said, his name was Ken, I never get Ken. And I said, Ken, can I borrow your proposal? He said, sure. So where, when I did my proposal, I just changed elderly to black. Black people <laughs> buy this, black people have certain. And so that was sort of my sort of research, research. you know, that, 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 that this... And so, uh, you know, and cable was not in the big cities. And uh, another thing I did was I picked up the phone and called a, a small town in Alabama called Anniston, Alabama. And I didn't know any number, but I just figured there's got to be a black barbershop. So I found a black barbershop, you know. So I called and spoke to this guy who was the owner of the shop and said, hey, I'm thinking about starting a channel that would bring black programming, black college football, you know, you know. And say, would you think people in Aniston would subscribe to cable if they could get black program? He sort of took the phone down and said to the people who were in the bar, hey, there's a guy here saying if we had cable, would we subscribe to black program if it was available? And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's my research. Oh, so, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So, you know, but but entrepreneurs got to be somewhat, like I said, total believers and and willing to do something that nobody's ever done. Be able to have that that ability to look over the hill mm-hmm. and see something or that desire to climb a mountain that nobody's ever climbed. And and when you do that, you also got to be 
fundamentally in the right place at the right time. Yeah, and and have the access to capital. I mean, most people say over and over and over that you're a great visionary. And I would argue that you are also a great relationship builder. So the relationship that you built with, with Malone was helpful in, is to get in that first round. But how about as you went down the road to get the next round of financing and the next round? Because that, excuse me, that first half a million couldn't have been the only money that was put in before you, you know, got to profitability. There, first of all, let me say this. There's plenty of capital. I don't have to tell you, mm-hmm. you're the best in banking business. There's plenty of capital out there. You know, sometimes it goes up and down. The economy goes up and down. But there's lots of capital. There are very few good ideas. So what you have to do is first have a good idea and go up for capital. Now, for African Americans, you know, it is absolutely a fact. There's discrimination against access to capital. Mm-hmm. And many investors who would invest with a white entrepreneur will give them money 100 times faster than they give it to an African-American entrepreneur. Because, unfortunately, for a long time, it has been a belief among white business people and white people in general that African-Americans were not capable of managing capital. Mm -hmm. And you can see that today when you look at the number of African-American CFOs and publicly traded companies. Mm. If you look at the Fortune 500, I'd be willing to bet you they're less than 5% Mm -hmm. of CFOs. And, you know, CFO is usually usually the pathway to be CEO and Mm -hmm. so forth, chairman. So that's a problem. And that problem has existed since slavery. And Mm -hmm. today it still exists. And so African-American wealth is far below that of white American wealth. I mean, white Americans have a net worth 10 to 12 times that of the average of the median African-American. So access to capital, and if if there's no capital in your family, which is where a lot of businesses start right. with what they call family money, family mm-hmm. funds. Friends and family. And if you don't have friends and family money, you're going to have a tough time. So clearly from an African-American entrepreneur standpoint, you have to really be precise of what you want to uh, market and sell. And then you got to, like you said, make an impact on people who can help you as you reach the point where you start looking for capital. A friend of mine, when I worked in the cable industry, the guy who had the cable industry told me once, which sort of stuck with me, he said, make your friends before you need them. Mm-hmm. And, and that means that's a great playbook point. Those are the kinds of things that you got to do. But uh, it, it's it is very difficult today. I mean, if you take BET, you know, BET went public in 1990, and if you think about the stock market, probably I think was founded somewhere in the 17 to the 1600, 1700s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you do 200 <laughs> years before the first African American company was publicly traded. On the New York Stock Exchange. I hadn't thought about it like that. That's That's a a huge gap in what I call the market, investors who don't know you. The people who put money behind BET in the public, they didn't know me at all. They Mm -hmm. knew it was a black-owned company. They knew I owned it, Mm -hmm. but I never met them, never went to their house. They never came to my house, Mm -hmm. but they believed in the market system. Unfortunately, African-Americans have been deprived of that access because of previous and prior and existing discrimination that African-Americans are not able to create, manage, and sustain capital. Mm-hmm. And and uh, it's changing, but it's not changing as rapidly as you or I would like. Which is interesting when there's far more evidence that African-Americans can than there is evidence that they cannot. So a lot of that, I would argue, is also perceptions. 
Oh, it's it's definitely perception, yep. and it's a perception that was created by behavior. I mean, if you say somebody can't do something, you never give them money. Right. You basically prove the point. Yes, because you can't start something if you don't have the access mm-hmm. to the capital to start it. So you're never able to prove somebody wrong, mm-hmm. right or wrong, and that's the problem that we have today is that you've got literally hundreds of African-American entrepreneurs. They just can't get past that initial capital investment to get them to begin to prove the positive. Right. And so if you never prove the positive, you know, and when you add that to what I call the old boy system, and same thing, I think women feel the same way, had I not been in the cable industry and met John Malone, it is very unlikely that I would have started BET because mm-hmm. I didn't have friends and family money. I had mm-hmm. 10 brothers and sisters and right. fir- first wanted to go to college and so forth. So no way to do it. But when you meet somebody, it changes. Unfortunately, we are not in that uh, what I call deal flow. Mm-hmm. And you understand the deal flow. I understand the deal yeah, flow. Deal flow is, and it affects women too. I mean, if you're at a golf club and you're a member of the golf club, you know, nine out of ten times, those people are all business people or they got business connections. Mm-hmm. If you're not at the golf course playing out uh, around or sitting in the in the pro shop and having lunch, and you don't meet the guy who will give you support for your idea, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, if African-Americans are not in the deal flow, it doesn't happen. So we got to change the... Access to capital perceptions or, or behavior, and you got to get access to the deal flow. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it historically, how African Americans have gained wealth. First, it was on the basis of segregated businesses. Mm-hmm. That's a correct. black barbershop is a perfect example of a segregated business. You cut black people's hair, white people didn't cut black people's hair, you got a thriving business. Another group were black funeral homes. Mm-hmm. Black people buried black people. White people didn't bury black people. They didn't put them in a white cemetery. Mm-hmm. And so those folks got rich, and eventually, you know, like everybody else, they had an exit strategy. And then there's another group of African Americans who get wealthy. It's based on their innate ability, their skill. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with their business acumen. First, <clears throat> it has to do with their skill. My friend Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. Michael Jordan is a billionaire because he started out showing he had an ability that the market bought. You know, NBA bought it, gave it to him. And he was smart enough <clears throat> to take that ability and that brand and turn into a shoe business and now into a basketball mm-hmm. team. And you can put Oprah Winfrey in that category. Mm-hmm. You can put Tyler Perry in that category. And you put So that group. And so you, we've got to get to the point where you're not successful because you're an athlete, singer, or 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 something else, or a TV personality, or an actor. You're successful because you got that ability to define opportunity, attract capital, and build that opportunity into a value. So, what do you say to the young Bob Johnson today? It's 2019. He just finished pick any business school, and he has this now disruptive idea for cable and content 3.0. So, but. He doesn't have friends and family either. He has to figure out how to get access to the capital. What do you say to him? Well, what I would say to them is exactly like what I did. You've got to find yourself a way to enter into that world where people are more likely than not 
to be interested in your product or service. So you get in the traffic. Is you got to get into the deal flow. You mm-hmm. got to get. You got to. If you want to be at the Silicon Valley, you got to find somebody who knows what Silicon Valley is and walk you into that room or into that space. And you got to be willing to do a deal based on value, not based on. I don't want to, I want to control it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I find a lot of entrepreneurs say, I got to control it. Well, control is a, is a definition that you should focus on. Are you creating scalable value? Okay. And would you rather own something that you own a hundred percent and it's worth $10 million mm-hmm. or would you really own something 30% of the worth $10 billion? You, you do the math and you clearly would answer the, the right way. You want to be, Part of something that's scale and large, and 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 it, for too often, we in the black community, and this was historic. It's totally dictated by the, like what I was talking about, the discrimination. We felt we had to own a hundred percent. Yes. The problem with owning a hundred percent is you you don't you can't get mm-hmm. growth capital, you can't get marketing capital, and so you end up not getting the scale. So if you sell part of it, you sell 20% of it for the right value, you take that 20% infusion of capital and go out and invest in growing the business. And that way you get the scale. And so I I think if I was saying anything to African-American young entrepreneurs, look to get the scale Mm -hmm. by strategic partnerships. Right. So if I if I could put a playbook a point around that is if you don't already have the friends and family and you think you have a great idea and use today's language, a disruptive idea, you have something that the marketplace needs. If you don't have that, then perhaps you go and work for somebody who's in that industry who could understand that thing, which is what. Uh, you know, Bob Johnson did. He was a lobbyist in the cable industry, learned the industry that way. So if you want to do technology, go work for a big technology company. If you got a great finance idea, go work for a great financial services firm. Nobody says you have to do it for 10 or 20 years, but get in the traffic that way through work. And, and while you're there, be intentional about A, saving your money and B, building the relationships. So when you need them, you have the network. Yeah, you got it's what I call you got to figure out a way to get into the deal flow. Mm hmm. Okay, so we've started a little bit of a tradition on access and opportunity, and it's called the lightning round. And it's a fun way for our listeners to get to know you. And I know a lot of people know you already, but hopefully we can ask you a few questions that they don't know. So I'll give you rapid fire questions, and you tell me the first thing that comes to mind in terms of the answer. You ready? I'm ready. Favorite book or magazine? Uh, The Ten Caesars. Okay. City or countryside? Countryside. Okay. Winter or summer? Summer. Favorite RLJ business sector that you operate in? Content. Okay. Coffee or tea? Neither. (laughs) Okay. Text or phone? Uh, Text. If you had a talk show, who would be your first guest? Tom Malone. What's one word that you'd like to use to describe your legacy? Fascinating. All right. Well, Bob Johnson, thank you very much. Carla, thank you. Thank you for listening to Access and Opportunity. In our next episode, we're joined by the founder of Part Pick, Jewel Burks Solomon. 
And does she have a story to tell you? We'll see you then.